Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Before we get started tonight, I wanted to shout out the East Coast Gem Mineral and Fossil Show. It's happening this weekend at the uh, Eastern States Fairground where the Big E happens. And you can find out more info about it on the web via the events calendar at explorewesternmass.com. And so, you know, I mean, it is a trade show to buy uh, minerals and fossils and gems and things like that. But it is also fun to just kind of look around and see things. Um, there is an entry fee, so be aware of that. Um, but if you're interested, it is happening this weekend. I've been a couple of times and I've really enjoyed myself. I also want to take a quick detour to shout out a bit of happy queer news, if you will indulge me. Now, obviously, I always try and keep this show as positive as possible. And so despite the fact that I have complicated feelings about religion, uh, being personally against it, uh, but having grown up enough to know that it's more complicated for other people, uh, this story definitely warmed my heart, though. And so a few weeks ago, a conservative Christian named Sean uh, Fucht, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but I also frankly don't really care. <laughs> he tweeted, and uh, by the way, I absolutely uh, give you permission to always dead name Twitter. Um, <laughs> I will never use its quote unquote new name. It will never happen. I do not plan to do that. Thank you very much. So he wrote, if you're wondering the end goal of the deconstruction movement in the church, then no, look no further than former worship leader at Derek Webb's new collab with a drag queen. These are truly the last days. I need some pearls to clutch. <laughs> and so he was pointing out the fact that Webb had uh, been working with the drag queen Flamey Grant, uh, which if you know anything about country music is a amazing drag name uh, for a Christian drag queen. <laughs> And so Flamey responded, end goal, baby, we're just getting started. To which he responded, well, good for us. Hardly anyone listens or cares what you do. Bad for you is one day you'll sit before Jesus and give an account for the perversions you tried to force on kids. <sighs> now, uh, if you're not in the know, the deconstruction movement uh, in the church has this absolutely wild idea that maybe, just maybe, if Christianity moved with the times a bit and became more open and accepting, people wouldn't be fleeing it in droves, especially hardline evangelical flavors of Christianity. Shocking, I know. I interact with trolls and negative people all the time online, but never somebody who has a hundred thousand followers and is known for being aggressive with some of his 
stances. Flamey, whose offstage name is Matthew Blake, and uh, they go by they, them pronouns. And uh, so they told this to Rolling Stone. I definitely had a moment of pause where I was like, okay, queer people are legitimately under attack physically. Our bodies are under attack in this country. There are fights breaking out outside of drag shows. But at the same time, it was just too good because his point was no one cares. No one listens to you. You're a non-entity. You're not going to make an impact. And just knowing that what I know about the queer community and allies, I rolled the dice and placed my bet on that being dramatically wrong. And I think I won. And so what Flamey did was to use their newfound spotlight to rally their supporters to rocket their worship song, Good Day, and subsequently also the album called Bible Belt Baby to the top of the Christian music charts on iTunes. And in fact, uh, that week they even managed to raise the album as high as the 48th uh, spot on the iTunes all genre uh, album chart. So pretty impressive. Artists like Flamey and I both wait for these moments because there's really no better press than somebody hating what you're doing for the right reasons, Webb noted. It really is amazing to see such awesome stories of people trying to bully uh, members of the LGBTQ uh, community and being blasted by a wave of love and support for those communities. And I think that um, these are the kinds of stories we need right now. And so I wanted to share this one because I thought it was just really um, lovely and heartwarming. And if you uh, are so inclined, you should definitely go and look up uh, Flamey Grant's uh, music on iTunes or wherever. Um, and just, I think it's really cool. All right. So enough detour. Let us get to, uh, tonight's stories. And so first I want to check in with a project that we've talked about a lot on this show, the mission and retrieval of matter from the Ryugu asteroid. And so it turns out that the material brought back from the asteroid contains fragments or clasts that are composed of materials that were created before our solar system, including the sun, uh, were born or existed. And so they note the chemical makeup of the primitive clasts compared to bulk Ryugu suggest that the clasts formed in a unique part of the protoplanetary disk enriched in pre-solar materials, the research team said in a study which was recently published in Science Advances. Now, the material was studied using energy dispersive X-ray spectroscopy and nanoscale secondary ion mass spectroscopy. It's amazing how many different kinds of like cutting edge spectroscopy and spectrometry we have now. Um, and so, yeah, the researchers discovered that the pre-solar silicate grains inside of the clasts were rich in carbon-13 isotopes. 
And so most of the samples were silicone carbide. And they believe that the materials would have formed around asymptomatic giant branch or AGB stars, which will include our sun one day, uh, though one may have been born out of a supernova. And so main sequence stars, which are the most abundant type in the universe, as far as we've figured out at this point, once they've burned through their hydrogen in their cores via nuclear fusion, they evolve into AGB stars, which are similar to red giants. Eventually, powerful winds blow the outer layers off until the only thing remaining is a white dwarf. Now, the fragments seem to have come from stars with similar or lower metal content to our sun, and they had a high ratio of oxygen-17 to oxygen-18 isotopes. High levels of oxygen-18 isotopes are only produced during supernovae, and so as noted, only one grain had high levels of oxygen-18 isotopes, which suggests it might have come from a supernova. Now, the fragments were not from the formation of the asteroid, but must have originated via an impact with some other uh, object that was extrasolar, most likely. And since pre-solar silicate grains cannot survive contact with water, they must have been deposited after the asteroid or the parent object lost its water. Since the object's was most likely from the outer reaches of the solar system, they hypothesized that the parent object initially had more pre-solar material, but that it was obliterated by water. Now, the findings are similar, but not precisely matched to the chemical makeup of the comet Wild 2, making the origin of the materials most likely from an impact with a comet. But... More research will continue to be done, and also we'll soon be getting samples from the asteroid Bennu, uh, which will give us even more insight into the early solar system by allowing us to have um, a sort of true comparison between the two sets of materials. Now, let's stick with space for a moment and uh, talk about the European Space Agency, which did something pretty cool uh, last week. Um, and so they were able to guide one of their older satellites into the atmosphere to burn up and rain any possible debris on an unpopulated area of the Earth. Now, that doesn't sound all that amazing, except when you realize that it was not designed to do that. So the Aeolus satellite was fairly small, about 1.1 metric tons when running basically on empty. And so this is considered a first step in trying to address a larger problem that plagues our local space. And of course, that is the issue of space junk. Not only is it dangerous for new missions to try and launch into an area that is now often filled with debris, and also satellites have half have been having to, you know, make course corrections to not collide with other, th with things in orbit. Um, but it's also 
poses a danger when the orbit degrades enough to cause re-entry into the atmosphere. Um, if you're old enough, I have to admit, this always reminds me of that one episode of Northern Exposure. Um, and if you've seen that show, you absolutely know what I'm talking about. Um, I shouldn't laugh because it's actually a sad episode, but um, it was obviously, uh, it's a funny episode. Anyways, <laughs> moving forward, satellites will need to be designed with a safe re-entry or burn up in mind. But again, the ALS was build, built before this in the late 90s. And so this was before we really got concerned about these sorts of things. Because the satellite was in polar orbit, however, it could have actually landed pretty much anywhere when it finally ran out of fuel. And it was estimated that around 20% of the bulk would have survived re-entry. So they, it wound up that the science, um, they wound up the science the satellite was doing, uh, which was measuring winds from space back in April, so that the craft would have enough fuel left to try out the plan. This is quite unique what we are doing here, said Holger Krog, head of ESA's safety office before Friday's final re-entry maneuvers. You don't find examples of this in the history of spaceflight. The re-entry of the Skylab space station in the late 70s, that was a bit of a similar type of assisted re-entry by changing the attitude and therefore changing the exposed area to atmospheric drag. That maneuver, however, still left debris scattered across Western Australia. Krog hopes that their success will spur other agencies into developing better end-of-life plans for space objects. The ESA is partnering with a Swiss company for a 2026 mission to recover a piece of space junk from orbit. And so that's also another uh, way in which people are exploring the possibilities of dealing with this debris is actually sending up uh, missions to sort of uh, grab it and either uh, move it somewhere that's not uh, as dangerous or bring it back down to Earth to be disposed of on Earth. And so the Aeolus mission was a qualified success. The satellite measured wind speeds around the world using an onboard laser and a follow-up mission, Aeolus 2, is planned for the end of the decade. Now, the satellite was originally meant for a science and technology demonstration mission, but the launch was delayed until 2018, wherein its global wind measurement turned out to be so valuable that it was actually used in weather forecasting models. The latest arc for the satellite was its controlled destruction over the Atlantic Ocean, not another unexpected boon not anticipated at launch. Operations are over for Aeolus, tweeted Josef Achenbacher, ESA's Director General. Latest tracking data confirms our final maneuver was successful and the hard work and dedication of the teams has given Aeolus a great chance for safe re-entry tonight. Okay, let us wrap up our space talk tonight 
with an update on NASA's Double Asteroid Redirect Test, or DART, mission. The initial goals of that test were successful, insofar as we were able to shift the orbit of the asteroid target. But there is obviously more to learn from this impact. Though visualizing the debris has proven hard, given the distance and the low albedo of the debris. Despite that, a paper has been released detailing images gathered by the Hubble Space Telescope that indicate about 0.1% of the mass of Dimorphos is now scattered in a boulder field, with some of those boulders heading towards breaking orbit with the asteroid system. Now, this is unsurprising because... Well, Dimorphos was a rubble pile, a mixture of boulders, small rocks, and dust held together weakly by their mutual gravitational pull. Initially, after the impact, all that could be seen was a streak of dust being pushed behind the asteroid by solar winds. Due to the size of the object and their lack of reflectivity, It required Hubble to take long exposure images in order to actually pick out the debris field of roughly 40 objects around 4 to 7 meters based on their albedos as measured against the parent object. So um, again, the albedo is basically how how easy it is to see a distant object. So, um, you know, there's all that speculation about planet X and they're like, well, if it had a low albedo, it could be sitting out there. We would just never know it. Um, But anyways, that's neither here nor there tonight. Uh, As far as I know, uh, the warring factions on that have been working on other things at the moment. Um, But anyways, now the objects are moving very slowly with the fastest traveling at less than a meter per second with some moving at a fraction of that speed. Despite this though, around half of the objects will escape the weak gravitational pull of the parent asteroid. The kinetic energy carried away from these collisions is surprisingly small, just 0.003% of the energy DART delivered. The researchers calculated that the material would have occupied around 2% of the asteroid's surface, which is consistent with a blast crater around 50 meters across. We'll be able to learn more in the future as the ESA has a mission that is launching in a few years to do a follow-up mission to the asteroids. So that is exciting. Um, Lots of great space things happening. Um, And uh, actually, I did want to bring up one more thing, which is that uh, I was reading about Ingenuity. Again, our favorite uh, friend, Percy and Ingenuity, are both still doing lots of really great science. And uh, it was um, a pretty exciting moment where uh, Ingenuity had made an emergency landing. And obviously, that's always a worry. But the 
uh, team was able to get it to uh, come up again and do another flight without problems. And it turned out that the uh, cameras are set up with a command that if the what it expects to see isn't quite what it is seeing, that there is a command that allows it to uh, decide to make an emergency landing just because if it's not seeing what it's supposed to, that's not a good thing. Um, and so, yeah, it is still plugging away. It's so amazing how uh, integral ingenuity has become to the mission considering it was supposed to just literally be a proof of concept and you know do a short couple of short flights see what it could do and um you know be able to show that we could use um aerial uh instruments in um mars's atmosphere and so yeah that is very, very cool. Okay, let's move on now and talk about art and archaeology. First, let's talk about a uh, fairly modern story. Infrared light has revealed a hidden portrait beneath a 1943 René Magritte painting. Researchers at the Royal Museums of Fine Arts in Belgium uncovered the rather striking portrait of a woman, possibly his wife Georgette, beneath the painting La Cinquième Saison. The work was uncovered as part of a larger campaign to explore the painter's materials and techniques. Although there have been plenty of times where the technical examinations of artworks have revealed a second image beneath a painting surface, it is always exciting when a new example is discovered. Thomas Lerner, head of science at the Getty Conservation Institute, told The Guardian. In this case, the IR reflectography image is so clear and striking that it even raises the possibility of identifying the sitter. Now, X-ray imagery is basically a rather standard way to examine canvases uh, for hidden pictures, but scientific techniques like this can also illuminate information about the pigments and materials, as well as technical, as well as the techniques employed by the artists. For instance, high-energy X-rays were used to unlock the secret of Rembrandt's impasto technique, which no one had thought would ever really be recreated. Earlier this year, scientists used X-ray powder diffraction mapping and synchrotron micro X-ray analysis to study Rembrandt's 1642 masterpiece, The Night Watch, and found rare traces of the compound lead formate. Information gleaned from the Magritte project is published in a new book, René Magritte, The Artist's Materials. And according to Catherine Defreit, a researcher at the University of Liège and the Royal Museums, and her co-authors, both Magritte and his critics rarely discussed his materials and techniques, so little was actually known about them. However, in order to preserve works of arts, conservators have to know what those materials and te techniques were, and so a project was begun in 2016 to find the answers. 
The object was to use the latest in scientific instrumentation to study 42 oil paintings and 21 gouaches created by Magritte between 1921 and 1963, all of which are housed at the Magritte Museum in Brussels. As is the sad case with many artists, Magritte fell on rough times between 1920 and 1935 and was often forced to reuse canvases and paint over earlier works. Now, some artists do this on purpose and, um, you know, some of the Magritte's that are uh, underlying were done after this time, um, but at that point it might have just been habit for him. And so, uh, for instance, a 1927 work called La Pose Enchantée, depicting a pair of identical female nudes, disappeared after 1932. It turns out that Magritte ended up cutting, ended up cutting up the large canvas and using it to create several new paintings. Two now reside at MoMA in New York. A third fragment was found at the Norwich Castle Museum, an art gallery, and the final fragment was found by uh, DeFate. Now, the team was then able to use X-ray fluorescence spectroscopy to analyze pigments in both the under and over paintings in order to recreate an idea of what the painting would have looked like originally. And um, it has a kind of um, futurist um, feeling to it. The female figures are very bulky um, and it's very minimalist, very much kind of something you would have uh, that people were painting in the 20s. And so, yeah, it's really interesting. And so, yeah, yeah. Um, now, they were able to do this for another missing canvas from the 1954 painting L'Evidence Eternelle. In 2020, the team found that dark speckled stains on six of Magritte's early oil paintings had been caused by, quote, a history of deleterious environmental conditions induced by long-term storage in a container and the use of leaf white based Upper paint layers containing ivory black may be contributing factors to the speckling. And so they were really able to dig into this material. They also found a cubo-futurist oil painting of unknown name under the surreal painting La Salle d'Armes from 1926. So it's no surprise that they have now found this latest work hidden in plain sight. The painting of a blonde woman staring directly out of the canvas may be the painter's wife, or it may be Adrienne Crowet, a model who posed for Magritte in Magritte in 1940. Now, looking at the portraits of both women that have survived, because he did paint both of them and there are paintings that survive from him, my personal opinion is that it is indeed Georgette, um, but obviously that's just my personal opinion. And so, yeah. Okay, it is time to take a break and do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we'll talk about 
basically this same kind of technology being used on uh, paintings from ancient Egypt. So do stay tuned for that. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as noted before the break, we are going to be talking about the use of x-ray fluorescence to discover more about the painting process in ancient Egypt. So recent, recent works at the Theban Necropolis have shown that 3,100-year-old wall paintings include underpaintings just like those of Magritte and other more modern painters. Documentation remains a problem in 2023, and thus what we are trying to do is basic documentation from different perspectives using digital tools at different scales, said Philippe Martinez, a researcher at the Sorbonne and the study's lead author in an email to Gizmodo. For the first time, we can produce models that convey a real sense of space as well as high-res images that enable the viewer to see the reality of ancient paintings better than on site. 
Now, the paintings date to around the reign of Ramses II and are found in tomb chapels belonging to Mena, an overseer under Amenhotep III, and Nuktamun, chief of the funerary temple's altar around Egypt's 20th dynasty. Now, the paintings in Mena's chapel are universally known as the apogee of ancient Egyptian paintings, the researchers wrote, while those of Noctamun remain underrated and simply inaccessible. And so the team found that a third arm of Mena had been removed from a painting, but they're not sure why. The royal portrait of Ramses II shows the pharaoh with a budding beard, a facial hair choice, quote, rarely displayed in Egyptian art, and even more from for a king, according to Martinez. They also discovered a Shebu necklace that is not present in the final painting. Being able to peel back these layers can help us learn more about not just the artists, but perhaps choices made based on religious or cultural norms. It also helps us preserve a record of these amazing works. And so it's really cool that we can be able to uh, preserve these works, especially since, you know, continued uh, environmental degradation is a problem. And so and that's one of the really cool things about technology that we have today, that we can do these sort of 3D mapping of ancient places. And even if it's not, you know, obviously as good as being able to go there yourself, or, um, you know, being able to experience actually, um, you know, being able to see things. It is really excellent to be able to do like, for instance, a 3D walkthrough of a space or be able to recreate um, images that are now uh, faded or hard to see in their, um, you know, in situ um state. And so I think it's really amazing. Um, and hopefully we will continue to be able to do that. And um, because of course there is the reality that some of these ancient sites might also eventually be uh, purposefully uh, ruined or destroyed. And so all of this work is really, really important. Okay, let's move on and talk about a different type of art, jewelry. Around 9,000 years ago in modern-day southern Jordan, an eight-year-old child was buried wearing an intricate necklace made of stone, shell, and fossilized amber. The remains were excavated in 2018, and now the researchers have finished the painstaking task of restoring the necklace to its original glory. The necklace is now on display at the Petra Museum and represents a significant contribution to our understanding of ancient burial customs. The child was found in an ancient settlement known as Baha, a village several miles north of Petra that was built around 7000 BC during the Neolithic period which is the period that saw the rise of farming, domestication of livestock, 
and the subsequent rise of complex societies. Now, the date was first estimated using comparison to other artifacts and then confirmed with luminescence dating. This is actually one of my favorite kinds of dating. It measures the length of time since the surrounding sediments last saw sunlight. I really think that's a cool way of dating things. Um, It's Like I said, it's my favorite. (laughs) And so the villagers would have farmed wheat and herded goats and sheep. Now, accessing Baha is not easy today. Researchers must clamber through a steep, narrow gorge, lugging their equipment onto a rocky hilltop, and then work quickly before heat overtakes them. While other jewelry has been discovered from the Neolithic period around the Mediterranean, none is as elaborate as this necklace, according to Hala Alarashi, an archaeologist with the Spanish National Research Council and first author on the new study describing it. The necklace consists of more than 2,500 beads, including a polished hematite pendant and a delicately engraved mother-of-pearl ring. They were found in the small stone-lined grave, along with the skeleton of the child resting in the fetal position. While they can't confirm for sure, researchers believe the child was female and have named her Yamila, or Jamila, which means beautiful in Arabic. As most of the beads were found near the neck and shoulders of the child, it was assumed they once formed a necklace. Reconstruction of the necklace was a combination of observing intact roads of beads and educated guesswork. Most of the beads were sandstone, readily available in the local area. But other beads consisted of turquoise and amber, along with the mother of pearl, and those would have all been sourced from far away. Nothing like this has ever been found before. It is a miracle that it was found at all, said Gary Rolifson, an archaeologist at Whitman College who was not involved in the study, but who has visited the site. The necklace suggests that Jamila was high status, though it's not clear why, and that her burial may have been a public event, allowing people to collectively grieve. All burials are rituals of some kind or another, he said, but this was something spectacular. And so, again, it is really important to remember that even in the Neolithic, people were trading with others, They were getting things from far away. People have always been connected in that way. And so I think it's really a great way to show that even that distantly in the past, even though people were just starting to uh, create civilizations, they still were able to uh, have trade routes and be able to gather items from, you know, places that were, uh, you know, far away. So for instance, the mother of pearl would have come from, uh, the Red Sea. And, um, I'm not sure where the turquoise would have come from. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really incredible. Okay. So let's move on now to talk about a paper in Nature Photonics which describes a process to print LEDs 
and optoelectronic devices using a set of ballpoint pens equipped with special inks. This is a very cool story. Researchers working with Chuan Wang, Associate Professor of Electrical and Systems Engineering at the McKelvey School of Engineering at Washington University in St. Louis, have developed the pens which can allow anyone to handwrite flexible, stretchable, optoelectronic devices onto a variety of materials, including paper, textiles, rubber, and plastics. Such devices are currently used, for instance, in smartphones and fitness trackers, and they are special because of that ability to bend and stretch without a loss of function. Now, this builds on earlier work by Wang and first author Zhenyi Zhao, a doctoral candidate in Wang's lab. They initiate, they initially created a way to print the devices using an inkjet printer, which was cool enough, but this is even better. Handwriting custom devices was a clear next step after the printer, Wong said. We had the inks already, so it was a natural transition to take the technology we had already developed and modify it to work in regular ballpoint pens where it could be cheap and accessible to all. Now, the pens are filled with inks that contain conductive polymers, metal nanowires, and crystalline materials called perovskites, which allow for the emission of a wide spectrum of colors. Each material is carried in a separate pen, which would then be used to layer upon the surface. The team used is especially excited about the prospects for biomedical sensors, but also note that it could be used for smart packaging, personal wearables, and other applications. The translation from printer to ballpoint pen might look simple, but it's actually a bit trickier than just loading ink, Zhao said. Our ink is specially formated, formulated, so the pens are universal, meaning they'll work on almost all substrates. Each single layer of the device is designed to be intrinsically elastic, so it will survive deformation and can be bent, stretched, and twisted without impacting device performance. For example, LEDs drawn on a glove could tolerate deformations from repeated fist grasping and releasing, and LEDs drawn on a rubber balloon could survive inflation-deflation cycles over and over. Now, there were also, again, some uh, sort of hiccups along the way. They had to figure out how to um, adjust for the wettability of the inks and to make sure that they stayed put because it's very important for the layers to be distinctive or else it doesn't work. Um, but they were able to get there. And so especially exciting is the fact that they can be used on 3D surfaces, uh, which is not, has not been the uh, norm so far. And another thing is that, you know, they're very easy to use. They don't require expensive clean room facilities to produce, nothing like that. And so Wang suggests that the future applications are really only limited by people's imagination. So hopefully in the not too distant future, we'll be able to create using this technology.
Okay, let's move on now to talk about um, what is basically an amazing but sort of accidental experiment in geoengineering. Now, this is something we could have never done on purpose, uh, so it's kind of good that it happened, even though uh, it is a mixed bag, as we will find out. So, for decades, giant container ships crossing the Atlantic, especially the Atlantic, but in other places as well, burned fuel that was sulfur-rich. This sulfur-rich fuel led to what was known as ship tracks, which are basically cloud formations that would streak across the Atlantic, and you could see them as kind of bands in the shipping lanes. Uh, They're kind of like contrails created by airplanes, but it's a completely different mechanism um, that's happening here. So in this case, the sulfur created sulfur dioxide, which uh, leads to nucleation in uh, clouds, but also then leads to, well, acid rain. But of course, it had uh, another unexpected effect, which is what we're going to be talking about. Because you see, besides the acid rain, or because of the acid rain being, you know, a bad thing, the ships were required to phase out this dirty form of gasoline starting in 2020 under a directive from the United Nations International Maritime Organization. The good news is that this led to a more than 80% reduction in sulfur pollution and improved air quality across the globe. Unfortunately, this also means there are a lot less ship tracks in the atmosphere above, especially, again, the Atlantic Ocean. And as you might suspect, that turns out to be a bad thing uh, because those clouds were actually helping cool the Atlantic kind of significantly. And since they've diminished, temperatures have skyrocketed. Now, some of that also has to do with the fact that we've had less um, dust coming from the Sahara, uh, moving towards the uh, west. Um, And so that has also uh, diminished the amount of scattering that happens. And so more sunlight is getting into the ocean because of both of those things. But these ship tracks are definitely a big part of it. It's as if the world suddenly lost the cooling effect from a fairly large volcanic eruption each year, Michael Diamond, an atmospheric scientist at Florida State University, told Science Magazine. Tian Li Yun, an atmospheric physicist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, has calculated in a paper currently under peer review that the IMO's rules have warmed the planet by 0.1 watts per square meter, or double the warming caused by changes to clouds via airplanes. Now, there is a potential silver lining here we have the potential to put those ship tracks back into the atmosphere using a much less toxic means. We can blow salt water into the air and the salt in that water will act as nucleation sites for clouds to once again increase reflectivity just as effectively as the sulfates. 
Diamond, Yuan, and colleagues will begin to work on the project to mitigate these effects with NOAA's small geoengineering research program. They hope that within a few years, they will have a viable path forward to reversing the warming. And they're actually hoping that perhaps they can actually move this out and be able to use it in other places as well in order to really use clouds to help uh, be able to mitigate some of the global warming that is happening, which would be a really great thing because uh, things are really bad. Um, I neglected, unfortunately, at the top of the hour to uh, make a note and uh, give my condolences to those who have lost friends and family in um, Hawaii. Uh, obviously, the devastation there is pretty bad. And, um, you know, part of that was due to a hurricane. And, um, you know, that's really in part and parcel with global climate change because also, uh, you know, Hawaii is not a place that you think of when you think of forest fires. And, you know, this is just the kind of thing that we're going to have to deal with until we actually manage to stop uh, polluting in record numbers. And unfortunately, I'm not sure how good we are about that. I was reading an article the other day about some uh, NIMBYs who are trying to block offshore uh, wind farms in New Jersey. And they're actually being backed by a outside group that is literally just against renewable energy. Just as a whole, just no, we only want to focus on gas and oil and uh, probably coal even. Uh, but just the idea that there is an actual group out there that is against uh, renewable energy, just like, ugh, it made me so upset. Um, and also the idea that like you can't, put wind farms out there because it would ruin the view is just, uh, makes me so angry. Um, so yeah, <laughs> that's a thing that's happened. All right. Um, so now that we've gotten through our, uh, stories tonight, um, I want to first apologize for having disappeared for a month. I've been really busy with a lot of things in my life and I took some time to think about the future of this show. Now, I've been doing this for over a decade. Um, I'm actually not sure how long I've been doing it for at this point. Um, but I think it's time for me to take a break. Uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic kind of fundamentally changed how I did the show. I don't really go to the studio anymore. I do it from my bedroom and I don't have the community aspect uh, the same way that I used to when I was making the show before. And that's kind of taken a toll. Now, I'm not sure if the show will come back right now. Um I am going to take a break and see if my passion for the show returns after a while. 
Um, I am going to be giving up my slot um, on Friday nights. So if it does come back, it might be at a different time and day. Um, but obviously, I would make any announcements on the website, evidencebasederata.com. One idea I have might be to concentrate on interviews with scientists and other people in the Valley because, uh, you know, one of the things that I really did value or do value is human connections. And so I'd love to have a focus on asking people about their passions, but I don't want to promise that. I want to thank everyone who has listened over the years, and I'm sorry if this will lead to a void in your listening experience. But I know that there are a huge number of great shows out there doing similar work. I will try and um, do a uh, recommendation uh, list on the podcast next week, um, give you some other places to go to listen to some YouTube recommendations, some podcasts. And um, I truly hope that you will continue to seek out information on science and skepticism and feminism and to remember that almost always capitalism is the true enemy. Um, another word for the wise is that you should always be suspicious of reports of room temperature superconductors. Um, so <laughs> I, uh, once again, was not, f I was not fooled this time when it came up because, uh, room temperature superconductors are basically the ultimate, uh, scientific MacGuffin. Uh, <laughs> I will be truly amazed if one is ever actually really discovered. But um, as most of you know, we are living in troubling times uh, and my ability to engage is being eroded by something um, that didn't used to be as much of an issue for me. And so, um, you know, part of the problem is the fact that my very identity has become a political talking point. Uh, so, you know... I have been very clear about and very open about who I am. Um, and so I have recently in the last, um, several months, uh, began a journey of transition. Um, and so while I have obviously identified as non-binary for a long time, I've really settled into, um, the identity of being uh, trans mask non-binary. And so I have been uh, using uh, HRT for a while now. And so my personal journey has actually been mostly good, but there's just a lot going on right now. And I feel like it's important for me to take a break and reformulate how I approach the world in many ways. Um I cannot recommend enough finding a good therapist who can help you in these uncertain times. Um, and I've realized that, um, you know, I've continued this show out of a sense of obligation to you all, which I don't begrudge in the least, but it's just not, it just, it doesn't spark joy for me at this point in my life. Um, you know, I am hoping that a break will help me regain my sense of 
purpose and hopefully I'll be able to come back. Um, but I just don't want to guarantee that. Um, I don't want to give anyone false hope. Um, this might be, uh, the ending of this chapter of my life. Um, but again, I just want to thank people so much for having listened and having stuck with me. And I hope that I have materially helped you, uh, in some way. Um, and by trying really hard to keep this show positive and telling you about the really cool and good things that science can do, um, because there's so much awfulness going on right now. And it's just really good to hear about something that is positive and hopeful. And I do feel like I am, uh, giving up that for people. And I do feel bad about that, but I really do think that this is what I need right now. And I hope that, um, you all continue to do really well. And, um, so thank you. You have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planet Side Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widget by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.